Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Take a moment to think of an iconic species found in India. What was the first animal that came to mind? I'm sure some of you saw an image of Asian elephants or spotted deer, maybe even a sloth bear. But if I had to guess, I'm sure the majority of you immediately thought of the most iconic species of all, the tiger. Between the doubling Tigers Initiative, awareness campaigns, the absolutely crazy Tiger King Netflix show, and this podcast, quite frankly, I'd bet that you have a pretty good grasp on tiger conservation issues. But what about India's big cat that used to live across Africa and Asia? Were you even aware that another big cat, the second largest in the world, is residing in India's wilderness? It's okay if you didn't, because today we are going to learn all about this very rare large carnivore, Asiatic lions. In this episode, I'm chatting with Stotra Chakrabarti, PhD, Assistant Professor at McAllister College in Minnesota, USA. Stotra's curiosity for the natural world began early in his childhood. Stotra grew up in the Indian foothills of the Himalayas and spent his days watching elephants and leopards and bringing home any injured animal he found, much to his mother's dismay. His interest in wildlife ecology and conservation biology was cemented during a very immersive and rigorous master's training at the Wildlife Institute of India which he continued onto a PhD by studying the behavior of one of the rarest lions in the world, Asiatic lions. I learned so much in this episode. Stotra shares everything with us. Asian lions history, the rebound from 50-ish individuals to an estimated 700, the current political stalemate the lions are in, and the big cat that might potentially claim the lion's new protected area. And no, it's not the tiger. If set in motion, this cat would come from many, many miles away. All right, friends, let's dive into everything Asiatic lions. Here is my conversation with Stotra. Hi, Stotra. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so excited to get into everything that we're going to talk about because your particular species is one that I know very little about. And I even know a lot about big cats, so, but yours is very, very unique and very special. But let's go back. Let's dive deep. If you could share with all of us, what is your journey? Where did you grow up? What was a normal day like for young Sutra back, back where you're from? And tell us everything. Where are you from? Everything. We would love to hear it. Thanks, Brooke. First of all, a huge shout out and a Big thank you for having me on the show. For, and it's like, I'm like super thrilled. So, so my story, well, I, I grew up in India. So I come from India and I grew up in one of the northeastern states of India, which is West Bengal. And I grew up in the mountains at the foothills of the Himalayas. So because of my family and my place where I grew up, it was right adjoining tea gardens and the forest, which is basically the Terai. And so I remember very vividly, that's like my oldest vivid memory of my grandmother showing a toddler me. I was like three or four at that time, 
showing me elephants in in the tea garden that was right adjoining our place and so i was not associated or accustomed to all the science of corridors and how elephants use these tea gardens corridors that came much later but that was like that memory of wandering in awe looking at like big massive herbivores right in front of you and you know they're so they they group and my grandmother explaining me how they live in groups how they have a matriarch so my ma- grandmother was very much into natural history and i think that got me into the path of understanding wildernesses and i think that started my entire journey of understand or or being in love with the wilderness i definitely did not want to be a wildlife biologist to really? be in the first place yes i wanted to be a soccer player oh I, really yeah. you got the hair so, flow for it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i wanted to be a soccer player for a very long time in my life until i went to like you know college i wanted to be a soccer player i played soccer professionally i i still do once a while not professionally but for the fun of it i love that game but i i always enjoyed animals because i grew up with animals i had pets dogs and cats and like and then other things came started coming in so i had owls that i i rescued i remember my mom and dad always used to fight like my dad always have been like yes get them help them so nurture them and my mom used to be like mom is a great supporter but it's just that you know it's like i'm a 5 year old kid looking at like a big tawny fish owl that's like my size mother like- get a bit iffy about things so yeah so understand yeah like my garage my my garage my power like back home used to have like owls and you know squirrel babies and and like i want so i think my mom lost it when i brought in like a like a tiny infant bat which was which uh, uh, like yeah, its eyes were closed and it kept chirping and my mother was like you know eked out like like my mom was like no that's not coming home so my dad's like mom said that's not coming home the garage is not part of the home and my mom's like i'm trying to educate <laughs> my son, our son and my dad's like yes <laughs> educate um, oh so, my god that's hilarious <laughs> so so all of that but but with that connection i think like having animals at home and and growing up very near to wildernesses got me like really this bug of whether i took it i pursued it for for my as a profession that's a different ball game that's a different story altogether but I always loved wandering and like moving around in wildernesses like uh, listening to leaves fall and that gave me a lot of solace and peace and always was sort of the weird kid in school <laughs> trying to get ants and dragonflies and trying to get you know tadpoles from over on rivers and streams during the monsoon so yeah I think that's all grew up and then i went to college although i wanted to do soccer i really wanted to play soccer but then i was like torn between i was really interested in numbers i was also really interested in language so either of the two was like my choice i i could have gone and then i'm like you know what i think my love for animals and and then i read 
a lot of things associated with adventures in Africa, adventures in parts mm. of India, growing up watching movies. And I think, I think that was it. And I really wanted to be like a good, like, you know, associate and connect to animals and talk to animals per se, Dr. Doolittle. But then I have an entire family of doctors. So there was, although like my entire family is very supportive, they really wanted me to do whatever I wanted to, perhaps not soccer, but (laughs) anything else. So when I I then moved and I said that, all right, I want to do like, I want to be a vet. And my parents were like, okay, but then let's keep it not so focused already. Let's, let's open up to, you know, something more general. So I took up zoology in one of the finest colleges back in Kolkata and it, it's uh, the presidency college I went there and yeah I studied zoology although I did find a strong disconnect with like you know dissecting cockroaches and frogs to actually trying to understand organismal biology per se uh, then went to field trips and that was fantastic I went to southern India I went to Nagarole and which is oh I've been of- there Oh, you've been there. Oh, I've that's, been that's, there. It's a that was my first beautiful. tiger. It was my first oh, tiger wow. sighting. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. If yeah. I, I then went to Kabini, I, I don't... Oh. <laughs> of course. I don't, I, don't, I don't blame you. It's overwhelming. <laughs> yes, it was. Seeing your, seeing your first tiger is overwhelming. <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it all went through that. And I was like, yeah, I saw my first leopard there. Then went to Kabini, the backwaters, which was fascinating. And it just got me I want I look uh, I first for the first time I saw wild dogs like the dole the Asiatic mm-hmm. wild dogs I was blown out I'm like wow birds were my main focus I loved birds because you if you love plant, plants and birds even if you're in a city you are not going you're not really bored even if you're a naturalist so like birds and plants I was like really into and then I so and then my trajectory took a different leap altogether because the wildlife institute of India it's like uh, the premier institution in India that does wildlife research. It's the only like federal institution that does wildlife research and training. Mm. And they have a master's course, uh, which happens once every two years. And acceptance rates are like less than 1%. They just take like 11 students every second year. Wow. Yeah, across the, uh, across the country. And there were like two students from abroad. And so I think I got lucky. I got a I got a position, like a funded position in that. Like, wow! And so and <laughs> That's that. Insane. Yeah, I think I I just I was just fortunate to have gotten that. I yeah, perhaps incredible. Yeah, so, so I I did I did that course and that course. Other than the theoretics of it, what was fascinating was that it took us to all the major biomes in the country. So I remember when I first went to the eastern part of India which is the Eastern beach and where the, where basically the olive ridleys come and nest in, in mass. And I remember the night when we reached there to look at turtle biology and with our professors that night, we counted 85,000 turtles, that entire beach, a 1.2 kilometer stretch, that beach was alive. Like you can't, you can't like literally it's crawling. It's dark, yeah. it's crawling. Those are like like about 150, 200 pound turtles all coming in like waves. And I cried because I was overwhelmed. And I think that changed something in me. And I was like, wow, this is like spectacular is the word. And I was like, 
gone. And so I did that course and I, and I remember my first tiger sighting was on foot, walking a transect in Panna in central India. Oh, where, we, really? where I was, yeah, where we were being taught the techniques of wildlife monitoring from walking transects to putting up camera traps and like, you know, doing pellet counts and everything. And I did the walking and I saw my first tiger and yeah, I didn't know what to do. Kind of, <laughs> kind of naive, very naive. I mean, on foot, back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all way back in 2011. And uh, yeah, but then, and then went to the mountains, did our, and it was fascinating, not just the, the animals of the wilderness, but the people associated with it. And I just sort of, I don't know, I, it just, like things really change. So I didn't want to be a naturalist. I didn't want to be a wildlife biologist. I just thought that, well, this profession allows me to be in the wild, which is like, which is something that I really adore. Perhaps I could have done other professions that would have led me, but this, I was really like, at that time, I was really interested in understanding the patterns and the processes that leads to what we see. So mm. that's the sort of the backstory that led me to getting into a professional career of doing wildlife science. But I strongly hold that if I do not do field biology, then I, I don't think I'm doing this profession. Because... For me, I have to be out there. Uh, of course, I love the numbers, but I also love the animals or basically the individuals behind those numbers. Other than that, it doesn't make sense to me. Mm. So, yeah, so that was my journey till then. And, well, the connection with lions came later and we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, there is one thing that I would love to ask first. Just having spent so much in the Turai, no wonder why you and Sam Helly are tight because, duh, Turai, yeah. that's like totally her area too. Um, was there much conflict at all in your village then, like where you grew up? Because it doesn't, when you were telling me that story, I didn't feel much fear or anything. Where was there fear? Was there not? Was it just like you just happened to have family that really understood these animals and did not imprint that fear in you? Or could you dive in that a little bit with me? Because I didn't sure. feel any of that. I mean, someone who lives with elephants and tigers, there would be a natural tendency towards that, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'll just take a back step and tell you like, so our place was adjoining, although it's part of the city, but it was like the forest adjoining the tea gardens that are associated with our family. And it's right there connected. But I still remember the first time I saw those first elephants, my grandmother asked me to fold my hands in, in sort of a ritualistic namaste because elephants are gods for us, right? They, they epitomize Ganesh. And I think that was that came that that understanding it was overwhelming at the time to watch elephants up close and personal but that that connection that you that that people have with animals at the place where i grew up or at least in the country where i come from it's just phenomenal and mm -hmm. i think that's where the crux of human wildlife coexistence is in the country that i that i have significantly worked and I, I come from because I'm talking about 1.3 billion people sharing space with wildlife which are dangerous like I'm talking Very about dangerous. not talking about I'm not talking about jackals or wolves I'm talking about elephants and tigers and lions and rhinos and leopards in your backyard that can kill 
eat, name, you, your livestock, everything, your houses. So I think I was privileged to have had a family which had, you know, which had concrete buildings and concrete settlements because associated people, they, they, their, their houses were raided by elephants, their, their crops mm. were raided, but you, of course they were angry. Of course they were angry, but then it, the retaliation was in a different form. I think every time you go there, you associate with them, they are like, you know, yes, they had, the animals had to do what they had to do. They had to pass. And I think there is, a, of course, animals die due to retaliation in our country as well. And of course, why not? Because there's too many people. But it's just that the the sheer magnitude of tolerance and reverence that people have and that I have seen growing up is difficult to, you know, difficult to encode with just economics. It's beyond something. And yes, there is, so coming back to your question, there is, there was and is quite a bit of conflict that has been increasing because uh, human wildlife interface is just increasing. But there is, a huge amount of tolerance towards wildlife, general wildlife, and uh, towards life per se. And I think it's the major three religions that have come out of our country, like Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism. I think there is a very strong association with like, you know, religious and cultural tolerance to all life forms, which has led to this whatever status quo that you're seeing right now. Otherwise, 1.3 billion people, which is ever increasing, and we still have 70% of the global tigers. We have 27,000 Asian elephants, the largest population in the world. We have the largest population of leopards in the world. We're talking about uh, rhinos making a comeback. We're talking about lions making a comeback, and they are like dangerous predators. That would not have been possible if people were not tolerant. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, most of my backstory is because I come from that country. Mm. So that's, yeah. I could not agree more. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up simply from me, you know, just loving big cats so much and having looked into the religious conservation relationship as a scientist and just how fascinating it is. I mean, cause here in the U S you know, the dominant religion here is Christianity and the way that this religion teaches the greater community about how we need to view wildlife is obviously one of the biggest reasons why everything has been so decimated because humans are tough, you know, it would probably, yeah. I mean, and also too, you know, you look at uh, former religions, you know, like the Native Americans and their religions and a lot of the animals that were here that we've been great at extirpating were religious beings, just like, you know, Ganesh. Which goddess is it that rode the tiger? Uh, Annapurna or Durga. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So exactly. So like you don't kill gods, like you don't, you don't kill a god. And sometimes I just wonder what the great plains would look like if it is what it is like i can't think about that too much because that's not reality so why waste brain space on that but god sometimes i just think about that it's like what if the underlying 
cultural, I, I don't know, understandings or view of the world? What if it was different? And and how would that look different? Because I mean, <laughs> the population in the U.S. is nothing like India, and and how much more tolerant just the overall community is towards this wildlife? It just baffles me. I mean, it really does. Having been there, and also like being in Nepal, very very similar. People didn't retaliate. I mean, there is a point where like you got to understand, like if you know, man eating tiger kills. X amount of people, there's only going to be so much tolerance, yeah. 100% understandable, but still like that would never happen in a lot of other cultures. And yeah. so I find it beautiful. I find it so beautiful. Oh yes. It's overwhelming. And it's also something more like a utopia when I think about it as a conservation scientist and it's like a fine thread that we are walking, but I think that's the crux of wildlife conservation one of the major impetus of wildlife conservation in India and a lot of part in Southeastern Asia. And yeah, I think, I think it's beautiful and there is a lot to learn from that part of the world. And I just am fascinated with the, with sort of a comparative connection or a comparative account of how cultural tolerances and connections can change the topography of wildlife persistence in the world, mm -hmm. which is, I think, right in our right on our faces. Like we are looking at, yeah. So India as a country has not lost any of its large carnivore except the cheetah, other than and and these carnivores have remained, have persisted, have increased, and these carnivores are at major odds. They are at major odds with people and people's interests, but we still have a rich carnivore assemblage and they are going up. Well, that's a different story that what we are leading on to, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. And when I sit back and think, I think I'm fortunate to be part of that growing up, that upbringing where socio, religious, cultural, that interwoven and that that entire very strong tightly knit connection also includes very much includes wildlife and animals as part of the entire process rather than making them uh, sort of an exclusive affair which needs to be dominated or which needs to be kept away or or used per se right so for, yeah. for human use yeah so i guess That's as you as as you've rightly mentioned it's very it's like they're gods. We do not harm gods. Right? Tolerance can only be till till a till a limit, and yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I just I just really wanted to ask about that. Having spent so much time over there, and I highly recommend anybody listening. If you have not been to that part of the world, you need to go. It is a culture shock. If you are mostly from a Western society, it is, but it is. Incredible. I mean, I think about it all the time. I want to go back all the time. I just went to Nepal during the pandemic because I wanted to go back, you know, it is, it is incredible, but yeah, just listening to you. That's why I really wanted to ask about it and, and explore that. Cause any, you would have any right or your family or anybody that would be around you to have a lot of fear. And I didn't feel any of that. So that's why I was like, tell me why, why do you think that is? And so 
Yeah. Thanks for exploring that with me. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that. I think it's just growing up. We saw those animals and we didn't find, just you start living with them and, or we just get accustomed to them and they mind their own business. You mind your own and you just get to live with them. Yeah. Or, and that's how it is. But yeah, yeah of they're course, your neighbors. <laughs> yeah, of course, the neighbors. And there is a beautiful book, Tigers are Associated as Brothers like the hunters that go in because they are subsistence hunting, but they mostly do not kill a tiger because they are indicators of the forest. They need to keep them at a, the name of a tiger is basically a brother, which is yeah, superbly uh, interesting how these animals have come into our family lives and part of the household per se. So, mm. yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. So let's keep going down your journey here. So what was next? Okay, so you are in this unbelievable opportunity where only nine Indians can actually do this and two, you know, foreign people. That is insane that you were able to land that. So then what happened? Did you study, is this when you found lions or was Mm -hmm. it after this? Or, Or what made you decide to study this very particular rare species? So, yeah, that's a fun question because I was not going to study Asian lions. My plan A was to study jackals, which are like basically sort of ecological equivalents of coyotes here, because I was really interested in canids and sociality. Mm. So I thought about master's thesis work around them. Didn't go through because there were lots of ifs and buts, funding opportunities. Then I thought about working and then the plan that I went on with, I really wanted to look at physiology metabolism of like wild felids as a group and that's where i landed in this special place in gujarat which is like northwestern india and where the asian lions are found the global population of asian lions are restricted to only that state and a park of about 1800 square kilometers and so i go there and i wanted to do feeding experiments cafeteria experiments with you know, wild caught lions, leopards, tigers, jungle cats, and feral cats. So it's like an entire entire hierarchy of body mm-hmm. types. Because I wanted to look at physiology. I wanted to look at digestion. I was trying to uh, come up with these optimal foraging models. But for that, I, I, I went into and worked in a captive environment in a zoo, and which is like right bordering the the gear forest ecosystem so i enjoyed my so my time in the zoo was eye opening because i was not only working with the animals that i was working with the fixed number of lions and fixed number of leopards and fixed number of tigers that i are other animals that i was working with but i was also helping the handlers and, you know, the zookeepers to work and, you know, raise lion cubs and leopard cubs. And all my thought and all my pre-existing knowledge of, you know, rescuing owls to squirrel babies to mongooses all came into the picture when I was like Mm. looking at, like I, I took care of two lion cubs that were orphaned, two leopard cubs. And I think I was part of that zoo community and it was like super, supremely interesting not just doing my project but also connecting with people and you know connecting with orphaned animals going hands-on understanding them like 
I was a tired mom by the end of all of it because you know I had two <laughs> lion cubs trying to yes. uh, look for, and they're like ever hungry you have to feed them, and you know, the, all of that, and it was it was overwhelming. So all of that is going on in the backdrop, but some the scientist and my professor with whom I was working for my master's project, he leads the Asian lion project for the past like 25 years. That's like the long-term carnivore research project that he has. And this project was ongoing at the time. And I was working as part of that project, very, very focused into that captive environment working. But then I asked him that, do I get an opportunity to go out in the wild and do the project objectives if I finish my work at the zoo quickly. And yeah, of course, go get your... So then I go out and I'm like walking around and see my first lions. And I'm like, mm. all my time. So I, I've seen my first lions in the zoo. They're brilliant. But then when you go out in the wilderness, and this is this landscape which mimics very similar to that of the African savannah. But then, but then there are like these patches of like, it's it's a deciduous forest. It's not a grassland. So you have these patches of forest and mosaic of different habitats. It's rusty. It's brown because I was working in the winter. There's no rainfall. Winter and summer, it is hot. It's superbly hot. But then when I saw my first line, I still remember in the wild, my professor, he was with me. And he's telling me, oh, that's a mating pair. And I, for one, sitting in front of the car, could not find the male. I'm like, he's saying it's a mating pair, but I only see the lioness. First of all, it's a shock because I've never seen a one-colored, monocolored, monotonal cat ever in my life. I've, hmm. I've seen striped cats and spotted cats, like big cats. And I see this like monotonal, tawny, brown cat, right? And it's big, it's huge. And and it also gives you it also gives you the sense of hugeness because everything else is stunted because it's like you know tigers they live in these tall forests and 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 the size doesn't quite come out to you because the trees are so big or the grass is so so mm -hmm. but of course it's a massive cat it's much bigger than a lion but when you see a lion I was like wow. That's massive because just the proportion of it. I'm like, wow, that. But but still, I just couldn't go beyond the fact that I can't see. I, I can see the male, but I can't say it because I've worked with zoo lions for for a while. Like <laughs> they were they were wild caught lions, but like my, I'm like, I don't know. Should I tell him that I can't see the male? And just when I was about to that, like professor, I can't see the male. Is that a male? This male just peeks behind the lioness, and they are so beautifully camouflage because if you don't I, i'm sure you have seen lions in africa mm -hmm. and they just blend in if it's the environment if it's the grasses like you know if they're laying frozen, down right? it's just, yeah. and they're not close don't even try like yeah. you're not so, finding them so so i was like wow so that was my first wild lion sighting and then i think then i spent some time like beyond my master's project to look at this understanding what the project does, was reading up literature from the project and there was long-term data. And then I was collecting whisker photographs like Vibrisay photographs so that we could uh, uniquely ID them. That's like, that's the continuous monitoring process. 
Uh, so we do that on foot because Asian lions are culturally different than African lions because I keep talking to pre, like African lion biologists. Like you don't, I'd say that we, we monitor them on foot and you don't do that with African lions. They're going to eat you. They're going to come at you completely. So I definitely get it. So I got charged for the first time. That was the first time I got charged by a lioness. And I, I remember I was taking Visca photographs and all I wanted to do was like turn and run. I was like just a master student at the time. Never been <laughs> charged by a been charged by an elephant before, but never by a like large carnivore right in front. And I met one of my field assistants, he's been working in that project for like 20 years now. He just held my elbow and said, Nope, whatever you do, do not run. And I'm like, what should I do? I just stood behind him and he thrashed his bamboo cane, made a lot of noise. I was just stunned, frozen. Because, you know, when a lioness or a lion charges, it's like, it's just they, they gallivant to you. Like they, they thrash their tails, there's a ball of like dust. And it's like, it's just impressive and overwhelming the way they come with all that roar and everything. So I was just frozen. And I think that's after that, I didn't pee for like, like which was like for a while. And then, and I remember I burst into laughter because my field assistant started laughing. And then they told me a very interesting thing. It's like, that's your first charge. That's your first time you've been attacked by a lion. Either that would make you or break you. Mm. And I think that has resonated for the rest of my time because I went back, wrote up my thesis, my master's thesis, done. And I walked up to my professor. I said, I have these questions because I was finding these lines to be super interesting because these lines, the males and females do not stay together. And I was finding that that's like, wow, that's not a pride structure that you find or being talked about in African literature because lions are supposed to be communal, living in prides where you have a male coalition, you have females. And they here it's like males do their own thing. Females do their own thing. Females are their cubs. They hardly interact. And I'm like, wow. So I then went to my professor and said, I have these questions. Can I pursue a PhD? And he was like, well, I'm not very sure. We do have a lot of data. We can build upon it. Why don't you just take some time and go and find more of this information that you have already started collecting as your master's work. And then we can talk about it. I said, okay. So I went back to the system, did, a, did field work for a year, collected data, showed him and said that these are the patterns that I'm getting. These lines are apps very different from the lines that, very different from the sociobiology of lines that we know from African literature, which is like, you know, predominantly comes from the Serengeti and Gorongoro, which has like these supremely fantastic long-term study, say headed by, like, you know, started with Chala, then like, uh, you know, Bertram, Finston, and then Craig Packer at, at the U of M, who's a collaborator now, been working like fascinating data from those two systems. But I was finding very different line sociobiology in this system. And that's where I started. Uh, like, I looked at those patterns, showed it to my professor, and like, listen, these patterns are looking interesting now with this, that amount of data. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. And then I ended up doing a PhD on the sociobiology of males and females, looking at you know male coalition structure, mating systems, and yeah. And then with that entire saga of connection with lions started, and then catching lions was the best part of it. Putting transmitters <laughs> on lions and following them at night 
was the best part of it. I was like supremely tired, knocked out completely because I used to always, so we used to do these, uh, we used to do these continuous monitoring sessions where we put a transmitter on a, on a couple of animals in the pride or one of them. And then we used to do like a full cycle of monitoring all behavior sampling 24 hours a day for like three feeding cycles, which can be somewhere between eight to 15 days and like 24 hours following that entire animal or the group. So we had two teams. I used to always take the night shift, night shift, which is like starts at five in the evening, ends at nine in the morning. But because that was the cooler, cooler part of the day. Also, lions were the most active. Otherwise, they just sleep in. Yeah, what else are they going to do in that heat? Anything. (laughs) But at night, they're just super predators. And they just, and that gave me a lot of understanding of how lions interact with humans. And, well, as much as the fun part of the science was interesting of doing like animal behavior science of like, you know, understanding that male lions have hierarchies in a coalition which African lions do not or has not been reported. Resource sizes are small because they are feeding mostly on cheetal, which you have seen, I guess, in Nepal, a spotted deer, which is like about 75 pounds. And the dining dish is small, of course. So there is a hierarchy between males Female pride sizes are small, somewhere between two to five females, and that's it. So the number of mating opportunities are less. So there is a hierarchy where there is a male who's dominant, who gets 70% of all the matings and 45% more food from carcasses. But, and then there are, then there are the subordinate, and then they're like, it's a linear hierarchy. This was not known for lions because it was mostly for canids that you have this kind of linear hierarchy. In, in case of lions, lions are were always known as egalitarian per se. So that, and then looked at mating strategies, which was supremely interesting because the lionesses were mating with multiple rival male coalitions and all these male coalitions. Really? Yeah. So, so the, since, since the males do not hold female prides, they mm. hold territories. And each of these territories, multiple female pride territories overlap. And the males are connecting with multiple female groups. And these female groups are also interacting with multiple male groups. And the, there is no mo- monopoly. And the females mate with multiple male coalitions. And all of those males are absolutely convinced that the cubs are theirs. Mm. So that's that brilliant from brilliant. a lioness, like cub survival absolutely. strategy. Because, because infanticide is so high mm-hmm. in lions. And if you have a situation where the males are not like assigned to a particular pride, then you need as much protection as you want from all the males that you might come across. And that's what the lions do. They keep mating. The lionesses keep mating with different males. Pregnancy rates are as low as like 20%. So one in every five of those mating events, which are like long, three to five days of mating. Oh, so they they still do the like marathon sex runs. Yeah, marathon. With multiple men. Males. So, so, so they would do one estrus with one male. Male. Uh-huh. Even I've seen like the female would like go half an estrus with one particular male, take off, and go to a rival male coalition, not the same coalition. Go to another wow. male coalition and 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 do the, do that for like the next two days. And while she's still may, in estrus. While, while she's still in estrus. Wow. But mostly what they what the females would do is they, they need to come into estrus at least for like somewhere between four to five times before she gets pregnant. 
And all those five can be with five different coalitions, like five different males. Of so five is it possible for her litter to have like cubs from all these different males or is it so, just one so, that actually takes? So we are at the moment assigning paternity because we just finished the coalitionary patern- uh, like genetics, like how the males are related between mm. each other. Now we're just looking at paternity data of the cubs. And yeah, and it's it's totally possible that you find that in cheetahs. And I don't know uh, why it should not be in lions. But if we find that, that would be fascinating. But behaviorally, the lioness is made to like, keep the males at sort of a status quo. And the males are sort of sharing the females. And all the males are convinced that the cubs are, the, are their own. So if a male wow. coalition has had interaction with the female pride, any of the females of that pride and they will not kill the cubs and the same cubs which are which are being tolerated by multiple male rival male coalitions at different times of the month or the day or connection but there would be infanticide when new males absolutely new males come in Mm. as a turnover where they have no prior exposure to the females they would just come and kill everything so the females like keep like it's like it's like they convince by confusing the males about paternity and yeah they are super smart and this is an adaptation of the lionesses for this particular strategy and i think they're doing supremely well the males have no idea and i think that's why it's like super crucial been trying to always flaunt the idea that it's not the males who pull the reins it's always the lionesses so it's lion queens not lion kings like we need to change that narrative sometime it's like you know we uh, like it's the females who are winning the battle of the sexes most of the times and yeah so i guess so that was fantastic that's incredible i had no idea like that is just that's fucking genius <laughs> like for these lionesses. Oh my God. I mean, if they just know what their African cousins are having to experience, as soon as a male is kicked out of their pride, essentially, then all of their cubs are destroyed. Like it's, right. isn't it like one of the highest causes of cub mortality death is yeah. infanticide? Infanticide? Uh, infanticide. Yeah. yeah. God. Yeah. That's amazing. What other differences have you found? And just in general too, because I mean, not only are these lions in a completely different area, but they also look different. So how else are these lions different from their Serengeti relatives? Mm, uh, so I think I think by body weight, they're not different, although they look different. The males have a bit of a scrawnier mane because they don't look, they don't have as much of a nice full mane as that of the Tanzanian lions or the Serengeti lions here, the males more like have like sort of like much cronier mane. That's why they look a slightly smaller, but their body weights are very similar. They don't differ in their body weight. Females look up to me relatively. Asian lionesses look much sleeker with their face a bit more elongated, more leopard-like hmm. than uh like Serengeti lionesses where I find them to be far more circular faces rather but these are like more relative differences which are not very strongly connected with morphometrics it's more like looks but it's 
Asian lions do have a belly fold, which is like a, a like a fold of skin that's that's very visible. And I definitely believe that's sort of a founder effect where uh, you will find that belly fold in some of the African populations, but not oh really not, not everywhere. But in case of the Asian lions, you'll always find it because the Asian lions comes from a very small little stock of like somewhere between twelve to fifty animals, and I think most of the founders had it and that's why like all the population have it right now so so i think that's one of the major difference but it's not that the african lions do not have a belly fold it's not that they do not always have a belly fold but in case of asian lions you'll always find a belly fold like a like a like a fold of loose fold of skin right through across the belly line and yeah that's very distinctive and yeah, and, and case of differences, I think one of the major differences that I have understood of talking to like African lion biologists is that these lions are behaviorally different to in their responses or in their attitude towards humans. Because I hmm. think like humans have nurtured this population from like just about somewhere like a handful to where they are now. It's a steady increase. It's a conservation miracle. It's a conservation success story where lions were just found in the gear protected forest. They are now like in a landscape of, of about somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000 square kilometers of which just 1,800 square kilometers is protected. Uh, it, like, so lions literally live wow. in people's backyard. And they, they, they don't live. They thrive there, right? Mm. They have like pride. They have like total sociobiology connected with it. And I think that the number of interactions that humans and lions have, it's phenomenal. But the number of negative interactions. So like just to give you some stats, like I was reading and listening to one of the finest lion biologists of our age, Craig Packer's talk. And he was talking about how there's like the spread of, he, was, he, he looked at, the spread of human eating by lions and how that affects how prey densities are low and how that uh, result lions to have uh, strong confrontations with humans. And I was thinking about our system and the gear system and we were looking at like our radio colored lions and we found that one in every 10,000 encounters between humans and lions, when humans and lions are within visible distances, we took 30 meters to be a cutoff threshold where humans can also see them, lions can also see them. Just one out of 10,000 encounters were aggressive. Wow. And, and, and those aggression were just circumstantial. Like they got spooked or like, you know, there was a mating pair or females with cubs and that's about it. And it's never, like mm. hardly would you find that lions are actually considering humans as potential prey. Well, there are cases of human eating and wow. associated with a drought and like a really bad uh, case of drought, but, but you hardly see that. And I th I'll tell you a couple of stories where, which are like while monitoring lions at night, which was like the fun part of my work. Because I remember when like, I was, I, I don't know if I like, we were, so, so this was a time where I was monitoring a radio colored lioness with her two sub-adults. And she was in a sort of a prosopis thicket. This is the agro-pastoral landscape outside the protected forest. And there are these farmlands, like open farmlands, because it's an arid system. 
and there is not so, so much water irrigational water so you don't have a lot of crops like across the year and these times it's the harvest season and people are sleeping in the field so that you know crop pests like wild boars or nilgai mm-hmm. which is like the largest bove largest antelope in in the indian subcontinent uh they come and don't raid crops but i see that they this lioness was resting out in this prosopis thicket right beside the field with her two subadults which are like about two and a half years old at that time and at two in the morning this lioness walks out, comes into this open field because they use these open fields as like, you know, moving between these patches of Prosopis and Acacia, which are basically their resting sites in the day. And also they hunt in those patches. So they move, they're moving across and there's this lady, an old lady of the farm of the camp. She's sleeping in a charpai and a katla, which is basically like a choir bed with wooden stands outside. She's sleeping and this lion and I'm like sitting on the hood of the car and just watching with a night vision. With, I, and, and in a moonlit night, lions look like pale ghosts. Hmm. And it is absolutely so romantic to see them walk across <laughs> an open landscape. So it's sounds so, so, beautiful. Yeah. So they walk across and this lioness just walks to, and I'm like waiting with them. Like I'm getting uneasy now because this lioness comes sniffs at the feet of this woman sleeping uh, and i'm like i just got I'm goosebumps like, yeah i'm like i'm like oh no what should i do because that lioness is radio calling that's gonna come on me if something weird thing happens but then the lioness just walks across just moves nonchalantly away with her two sub-adults that's it the next morning i talk to this woman and she's like she doesn't even know and I'm like, look at the pug marks. It's right there beside your bed. And she smiles and said, you know what? The lionesses, the lions are just neighbors who have who just help us sleep better. Because if you have lions in and around your farm, in and around your agricultural patch, then crop pests like wild boars and nilgai do not come as frequently. So they can sleep peacefully at night. Now, which is in wow. super contradiction to studies in Tanzania, which shows that bush pigs, which come to the fields to raid, make humans stay in these crop fields at night, and that's a vulnerable time, and that's and that increases the chances of lion attacks. Whereas in this case, the lions just are like, it's very difficult to, like you know, ecologically or like really test for it. I'm trying to do it. But it's not only the people who are culturally different, but also the animals who who are they're they're behaviorally different. They're the levels of tolerance towards humans are are in a different league altogether. So I think it's just wow. not the culture of humans. It's also the culture of animals that have led to this, you know, coexistence that we are talking about. It's not easy to live with a like a super predator, and which is Mm-mm. like, yeah. But then. Yeah, and since the past ten years, lions are increasing. There are their their livestock depredation. They do kill livestock in these villages, and the, we did the maths, and we're finding that there are hundred new villages that have been added to the range of lion depredation map every year. So there are like hundred new villages that they're extending their range wow. to. So wow, which is optimistic and also scary for a lion biologist or a carnivore biologist or a conservationist because well 
you have lions in areas where they were not there for 200 years, for the past 200 years. So people really do not know how to live with a carnivore like that. And that right. has some serious concern. So there's a lot of work to do. At this moment, it's like, I think it's still going, but then it's like, yeah, it's as I would just reiterate, it's not easy to live with a large carnivore in your backyard. And when you have not lived with one for generations where you really don't know what to do when you literally open your back door and you see there is a pride of lion sitting right there. <laughs> and that's yeah. a reality in the landscape mm -hmm. that I've worked so extensively in. So yeah, I guess, I guess lions are not only, their sociobiology is not only different than their Serengeti or Tantanian counterparts they're also their attitude towards humans are also different mm. so, yeah wow and for also more of a history lesson what exactly happened to this particular population of lions so how did they get so separated from their african cousins what what occurred a couple hundred years ago for this bottleneck to happen so if you look at the recent genetic history of lions so there was this huge debate that the lions that are right there in india they were brought in as part of the trade route between africa and india but then the genetics then the lions which would be towards the east of africa the horn of africa like that would be the the closest relatives of lions because it is the trade route that's connecting Africa to India and the lions came from there, then the lions would have basically humans brought them in. That would have been the lions, like the gear lions would be closest relatives to the lions in towards the eastern Africa, northeastern Africa, but that's not the case. The Western Africa, the Western African lions are the closest relatives of the lions, the gear lions. So the route in which it went is like the lions evolved in Africa and the Northwestern lions moved through the connection. They went to Rome, Italy, came down to Turkey, went to the Middle East. Then through that came all the way connected to India and through the Northwestern part of India, they came in and then they settled all across until about the central part of India, northwestern to the central part of India. We do not have very strong records of lions down south, but that was the extensive range of the Asian lions, which was still recently known as the Panthera leo persica, because its type mm -hmm. locality was Persia. But now recently they have been changed to just two different subspecies where the Asian lions fall as Panthera leo leo, which is basically the closest relatives of the Barbary lion, which is like now extinct, but they are the oldest. So now it seems like the Asian lions are the oldest living lineage of lions in the world because there wow. might have been a backflow of lions back. A group of researchers, fantastic work, they found that the Indian wolves are the oldest lineage of wolves alive in the world. It's not the really, the, yeah, they're not the wolves that we study in Yellowstone or Voyagers. It's the wolves that in India that survived the Pleistocene, like the, they, they survived. And then there was a backflow again. Wolves evolved in North America, moved across, went extinct, 
and then there was a backflow of wolves from these parts of the world to like recolonize so, so perhaps cool. the the lions also went through that but so what happened in india was they went through two genetic bottlenecks one was when the sea level rose and uh, basically where the lions are at this time the the peninsula the katiawar peninsula which is like the gujarat peninsula that got broken off from the mainland of india so so the lions are all across the northern india towards the eastern part of india that got disconnected now hunting wiped off the rest of the lions it just got secluded to this part of the country their numbers also declined because of hunting and i think the last line that was found beyond gujarat the state was something around early 1800s since then wow. there were no lions outside of that state but that state because of lion hunting lions really went down to about somewhere between that so that was the first genetic bottleneck that happened where the lions got restricted to one state where the mainland population got completely disconnected and then wiped off and then the next genetic bottleneck happened at the onset of the 19th century where they were hunted down to the last somewhere between 12 to 50 and the erstwhile nawab who was the king of junagar the state where uh, basically which is uh, the the erstwhile uh, district uh, the now the district which is associated with the gir protected forest wrote a letter to the then british viceroy lord curzon that you know you're welcome to come and see but hunting will not be allowed because they're just a handful and that that's the protection that started from the nawab and then in independent india the central government and the government of uh, gujarat did a fantastic job to protect nurture and since then lions have increased since like 50 to now somewhere around 700 to 800 individuals and it's been a steady increase lions have not only increased in numbers but they have increased from like like just 1400 square kilometers to like somewhere between 15000 to 18000 square kilometers so we are looking at a conservation success story but with all success comes the problem of surplus and conflict and that's what we discuss so the history of lions goes back quite a bit but i'm also totally intrigued why sri lanka would be uh named so why does it have a lion in its emblem where there were no lions beyond southern india mm it's uh, it says that ashok the great king ashok sent his son megasthenes with a lion because his capital was lion capital that's what the lion chakra is on the on our coins the ashok chakra with with four lions and it's a royal symbol but then he sent his son to the king of sri lanka to spread buddhism because he was converted to buddhism he embraced buddhism and uh, and his son went and apparently he went with a like a gift of a, like a live lion and that's why it's named sri lanka with an emblem but there are also different records of finding tigers there like tiger on sri lanka in sri lanka like paleo uh, records of tigers there where you have leopards because leopards right. came in earlier before the land bridge between sri lanka and india broke tigers came much later but mm. recent records fossil records show that there is a cave in sri lanka where they found a uh, tooth which is closest would be a tiger 
So perhaps we don't know, but so we do not have any records of lions down south, but yeah, it's still a mystery, but they were surely there from uh, across northwestern India to central India to eastern India, parts of eastern India. And yeah, and I think that's the history of lions, but that's the connection of lions with humans too. Wow. Do you think that it was competition with tigers or do you think just a niche filling why you don't think they moved further south or, uh, you, or combination of both? Uh, that you're talking about that the lions, that the tigers moved further south. Uh, well, so lions and tigers cohabited till like pretty recently. There were tigers in Gujarat. There were lions. If you if you read mythology, Shiv Puran per se, there are examples of records of tiger lion hybrids in the wild. So I'm definite, absolutely, really? they, they they did have like the same range until pretty recently when they separated out, and a tiger and lion one to one, a lion is no match felt both of those animals worked more with lions, less with tigers, but completely that's a different beast altogether. Tigers are <laughs> animal altogether. Yeah. Yeah. They're beautiful, scary creatures. They're amazing, but don't want to meet gives, one of those unexpectedly. <laughs> gives you the creeps, isn't it? Uh, it gives me the creeps completely. <laughs> so, but a group of lions can be strongly over-competitive, over, like, more competitive than a, than a tiger when they're like face-to-face encounters. But I think it's more to do with like how habitat shrunk and they just couldn't separate. There were not enough niche available to make those segregations per se. And and I think they just got moved out. They just, they just separated out. And I think more of the lions got extinct locally extinct in the other parts of the country it's more primarily because of hunting because they were rarer than tigers so of course they were far better bounty a far more Mm. feeling of pride which brings us to the the bigger trophy they are bigger trophy different looking trophy the machoistic ego because you kill a male lion and it's like connected with patriarchy all through right you're talking mm-hmm. about a male which wears a crown of male and it's bigger and than the females and it's sort of yeah associated with not of male ego so that and it's a matter of pride and that's very very ironic that a group of lions is called a pride because it's all associated with that sort of you know connection with human psych like how they looked at lions per se. But bringing the story back, uh, the lions were wiped off outside of this particular state because of uh, severe hunting. And tigers just could take that pressure because they were more tigers than lions. So, well, well, the tiger numbers also dwindled to about 14, 11 in 2005, six, And then since then have come back to about 3,000 now. Yeah, so it's it's more to do with, yeah, of course, competition, because you're right, the amount of protected forest reduced, humans increased, and agriculture changed. Uh, colonialism changed the entire topography of the country, hmm. not only just hunting, but also changing 
these landscapes into like major tree felling and forests were opened up. The railroads came in. So, yeah. Was it mostly British hunting the lions or? Yeah. And also, uh, it's not only the British because the the kings, the erstwhile kings were also facilitating, mm. but mostly so the royals. Yeah, the royals were hunting because it was royal trophy. It was royal game per se. And yeah, it was like tiger hunting was like absolutely thrilling. I understand. But, you know, go people going out for hunting lions, which are rarer, which gives you a different, and I'm sure they gave them a different kind of a thrill, which is basically what also is the baseline for trophy hunting per se. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, luckily all of that's in the past now. Yeah. And this has become, like you said, 15 to 20 individuals now estimated around 700. That's phenomenal. And we're not talking about like two, 300 years. This has been in recent time that yeah. this success has happened. And now, like you said, the pendulum is starting to swing in the other direction where it's like, we've almost done our job too well. Yeah. <laughs> now, what do we do? So, so let's go to that. What are some of the big problems that you're now experiencing having a thriving lion population? What are some of the biggest issues? What's the conflict and how do we mitigate it? Or what are some things that are being tried to, to help with this now new great but not good problem <laughs> well that's a that's a very interesting thing to dive in because now we are dealing with a problem of success and it's not just the lions it's a lot of lot other carnivores elephants as well because we've done mighty well since the wildlife protection act came in and we've done really well in bringing populations back and now it's not just right it's not just the protected forests that are holding our major carnivore or like elephant or populations or wildlife population they're moving out and there are no borders for wildlife and our protected forests are not so big that you can like you know keep them fenced and also have a viable population you need to have mm. those connectivities you need to have those buffers you need to have those percolations we do not have a serengeti we do not have a cougar we do not have a yellowstone we, our 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 protected forests in india are somewhere between average is about 250 square kilometers you fence them and that would be the doom for animals inside because they're not we're talking about tigers and lions and elephants they need space right yeah. Other, so so if we are doing that it's gonna be then we have to artificially move animals back and forth and that's like a complete mess uh so we are not there yet like perhaps we're gonna move towards that but like the african game reserves too that move animals between so nicely and so They've mainstreamed it so well. But let's be honest, we do not have a Serengeti. We do not have a Kruger. So fencing can, like, you know, you can only deal with a little bit of fencing where, like, humans and uh, animals are, like, exactly at an odds. You can fence a part of it, but you cannot fence an entire park. That, uh, that, mm. that, that would be detrimental to the, the biota, which needs, like, you know, sourcing dynamics to, to live in that landscape. So what we are dealing right now, as I said, is that the lions literally in people's backyard. And that's where they live. Like they are, there are lions inside the protected forest, but one third of, and, and more, increasingly more animals are living outside the protected forest in people's backyards. So what's the major problems is that, you know, they feed on livestock, 
right? They are killing livestock. And as I said, they're, the population on the lions thrived in this landscape because Gujarat is a, is a non-beefitarian state. There is an anti-beefitarian sentiment, but they drink a lot of milk because cow is holy, cattle is holy, and they drink a lot of milk. What happens to like old cattle when they grow beyond the milk period, when they be- become non-productive? They're just left on the streets, alleys. They're, they're moving into pastures. They go into these cattle camps where they are kept, given some primary care and you know food, water, but they die because they're old. They, they're vulnerable and they die and they're, they're dumped in the landscape. And the lions mm-hmm. get a bounty of free food. And when you <laughs> give cats free food, they breed like rabbits. And I'm, I'm just, this is an analogy. They don't breed like rabbits, but they do breed fast. Like, you know, they have quick turnovers of litters. Females come into estrus much faster than they mm. would when they have dependent young. So females, lionesses will not come into estrus for about a year and a half if they have young. But I have seen lionesses in this landscape, in the outer protected area landscape, coming into estrus in like eight months. That's there's insane. So much, there's so much food, right? There's the, so much they probably just like weaned off the babies at eight months. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so, so young. So, so they're like, so, so they cycle. They just keep reproducing. They recruit fast. And now with this nice level of food bounty or subsidy, you have, we have reached in a scenario where lions are just, there are a lot of lions. And these lions are not just feeding on the carcasses. They are depredating livestock. And our estimates suggest, shows that there are like 100 new villages that are being added, as I just said, added to the map where lions are making livestock kills. Every year, 100 new villages. And these new villages, most of them have no living memory of living with a large carnivore, right? So we are talking about a state where per capita income is still higher than most part of the country. So Mm. they're still taking it and they are mostly feeding on, you know, their herding practices make them mostly kill non-prized or like low expense livestock. Mm. The forest department provides a very quick compensation. And I believe there's no end to compensation. You have to be prompt. You have to make it and you have to revise your market, like your compensation prices very quickly because then then the, the social carrying capacity can be increased. But I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years where lions are reaching like suburbs and cities. It's a tough time right now. So I think education, sensitization, or providing people with the economic benefits of living with lions. You know, it's not just lions keeping crop pests away, but you have to bring those like, you know, out of the box thoughts of like, you know, if if people have lions in their farmlands, somewhere down the line, regulate tourism, give them the right of showing them to tourists, regulate it, and show them because they can bring a lot of money. They need to have an economic incentive of having lions in their private landscapes. If they don't get money, as as I think Craig Packer very strongly mentions about like wildlife have to pay their way through. And I think lions have to pay their way through in this landscape. 
And only then can you have like, you know, people and lions living in these landscapes. Otherwise, if people find no economic incentives, they're going to change those landscapes into lion unfriendly landscapes. What's there are now what's there are like Prasapis and Acacia patches, they would be changed into like, you know, built ups and built ups and concrete. And it's changing fast. I've been working there for like, what, 10 years now? And it has changed way more than what I was like. like I'm like, wow. So I think that economic incentive has to be brought in, but we have to think about an alternative. We have to. Otherwise, this population of lions is not going down. Like, what do we do with this entire interface is something that I, I, I struggle every day. Like, what do you do where other than maybe perhaps teach them, teach people like, you know, this is how you live with large carnivores. But then you cannot teach that to city dwellers. You can't teach that to like lions on paved roads. It's like a ticking time bomb. Mm. And we have provided some strategies that if you still want to have land lions in the landscape, you have to have those. So we found through telemetry that four square kilometers of sacrosanct path, which is like undisturbed habitat outside the protected forest is crucial for the females to like litter, to give birth and where they're young. So if we really want lions in that landscape to be feasible in the outer protected area landscape, we have to prioritize those habitat patches, which are greater than four square kilometers and safeguard them or give, make them as sort of some levels of protection make it as community reserves or like, you know, conservation reserves, give it to the communities to, to safeguard them. And, and at least that way it will not change into perhaps concrete or perhaps into like agricultural field. You have to keep them. So it's that mosaic that's fine balance, which is, I don't know if it's enough, but I definitely believe that you have to find, or we have to find a very immediate like an immediate solution in a way where people benefit for having those dangerous carnivores in their backyard. Like it has to be economics. Like people have to find money out of it. So I'll be honest about it. People do these illegal lion shows where people show lions in their private property because lions are everywhere and people take an exorbitant amount of money because why not? You get to see lions up close and personal sitting in your car and watching them. You don't have to give, even give the park fees and stuff, which is like the wildlife tourism, the legal tourism. But now it's happening illegally. You shut them down. People will completely be alienated and they will turn those at least lion-friendly habitat patches into something more unfriendly. So why not? Like it's happening. So why not regulate it so that the lions are not harassed? People are doing things at a safe distance and it's a win-win situation. But I don't know if that's, I don't think there is a silver bullet. So there is a, there is a lot of associated nuances. And I think if we really want to safeguard lions outside the protected forest in that matrix, we really need to work like work really far fast to stop or to think about like lion friendly development rather than like bringing concrete out of it so yeah that's something that needs to be done but i don't know if that would be enough or not like often 
a lot of us think about that whether the lions outside in these patches are doomed because we don't know if that patch would be there in the next five years because it's a private property somebody would like to make a like a hotel or a, or a building in it and that's it that path the pride that uses it as its major you know habitat source or basically it's their respite will have to be displaced and they don't have another place so yeah so to be honest i dabbled with a lot of solutions but i really do not have a strong solution because i don't know it's just kind of crazy <laughs> you're in uncharted territory right yeah. now which is both exciting and super scary i mean at yeah. the same time and all the reasons why you just said and anybody's been listening to this podcast for a while will know that I'm in conservation travel for exactly the reason you just said. The exact reason. Because the world revolves around money. And just like you said, and I've, I'm currently reading a book as well. And that's one of the things that it said. It's just, it's almost a sentiment now, which it really is true. And it's the perfect way to say it, that wildlife needs to pay to stay. Like What pays, pays. Yeah, and it's it's very true. And how do you get wildlife to pay? Well, you bring in people who actually want to see it. <laughs> and then their tourist dollars are then funded into the local community, especially if it's set up correctly and properly and sustainably, then everybody benefits. Everybody in that area benefits. I mean, there is a lot of corrupt areas and yeah, there is it's like you said, it's not a silver bullet because it's not properly ran in a lot of places of the world, but where it is, God, it is, it's such a strong conservation tool. Again, when it's partnered with great regulations, great tourism structure, places where people can actually stay, eat healthily, you know, have clean water, and then also have the protected areas as well. So that's all a conjunction. Yeah. You can't just have tourism. You have to have all of these things in combined, but when they're all together, God, that's why the Serengeti is still here. That is why so many species are still here is simply because all of these things were in place and absolutely. they bring in a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. And if we are thinking about these desperate questions, because times are desperate, we're talking about large carnivore increase and in coexistence. We need to be very bold in our management strategies. It cannot be just copybook anymore. Yes, right. it's a bold step. Yes, it's, you know, it's not the knee-jerk response that you have. But if you do not have these out-of-the-box ideas, then perhaps it will, it would be too late. And you, you just cannot, it's, that time is gone that you can safeguard species only in protected forests. I'm not right. undermining protected forests. We, it's crucial, absolutely crucial, but we have moved on beyond that paradigm completely. And these yeah. are thoughts, as you just mentioned, if it pays, it stays, it has to pay. And if it pays properly, done properly with proper enforcements and proper, you know, with all that you said, yes, probably perhaps like 10, 20 years down the line, it, it would be a thriving possibility of, you know, it's a win-win situation for both species or like both communities, wildlife and humans. Yeah. Yeah. And it just reminds me if 
when I was in outside of Chitwan um, and the Bogmara community forest, I mean, that was one of the best examples I've ever experienced in my life of a properly ran community forest where the community ran the ecotourism in their forest. And because of that, it was thriving. They had gargal and tiger and rhino, all these species that are outside of the park and the buffer zone in their community forest. And it was amazing. And I was walking around with the president of the community forest and he was just explaining, he's like, none of this was here. All of the jungle I saw, everything. He's like, 20 years ago, this was a field. And I'm looking at this pristine, these trees that are several, several, several feet high, these beautiful watering holes that they've put in for the gharials to thrive and the rhinos to come in. And I was just blown away. I was blown away. I'm like, this is a proper community forest. And it was 100% ran by the community. And just if, ah, just if that idea could like spread more, but again, this was outside of a national park. So it's the national park, the buffer zone, and then the community forest. So a whole different idea, which I know there's some things in Namibia, which I experienced of these like community forests or conservation area ideas where it's ran by the community. Um, Yeah, I, 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 of course, every single community economy is different. Culture is different. So don't know how at, at all what it would look like there, but that that's a possibility too, where it would be a community ran thing and everybody would have a say on how these lions are managed, how the wildlife is managed, and how the tourism is managed in the area. And I think that's the most inclusive way of going forward. Because mm-hmm. I think if we are talking about animals in community lands, like that brings to the question, who owns wildlife? Like if if it's not the people who share space and take the brunt of living with those animals, like you have to trust them. Of course, it's not blind trust. You're talking about like the nuances, putting it out there with some sort of enforcement legalities associated, but then you have to put it out there. Otherwise, what's the community's benefit of living with such a dangerous species right in their backyard? You have to also understand that you cannot just like bark upon religious and sociocultural tolerance for so long. Especially as religion's going down around the world. All and, religions and, and are going down. Exactly. And with, with as time changes, we are looking at a shift in tolerance. We have estimated it as people who are like in their 80s or beyond like in their 60s or 70s or 80s, they are far more tolerant towards animals than younger generations because it's just a different change. And that change is going to just increase manifold. So if there's no incentive, then what's the point? And yeah. if you don't give it, then I don't think that we really have a choice. So right. that's the way to go, I guess. And I believe it can work given the sort of history that we have, given the sort of that can connection that humans have with wildlife. I think we can make it work if we have a proper plan in place and it's like a strong step that we can take. But yeah, that would be quite, a, it's a sociopolitical will and yeah, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just, God, it was just so fucking phenomenal. Like just experiencing it myself and seeing it in person because all of the tourism that was there, I mean, the president, like he took us to these places, like these 
um, it's still very much cast. There's still definitely like different, you know, levels of society and like the people who are on the bottom, which I guess were like more of this like tribal group. Hmm. Um, I mean, there was so much development that they were able to do for these people all because of tourism, all because of what the the community forest was able to bring in together and that money was directly for them. And then they're incentivized to not harm any of the wildlife because a lot of that group is subject to, you know, is the more substance harvesting. And so yep. they are the ones that are going to be most directly in conflict with a lot of this dangerous wildlife. So there are examples. It's just, again, how do you take that model and put it somewhere else because that exact model you can't replicate anywhere else because <laughs> all the factors are so different. <laughs> exactly, site specific. Even the, the what they're doing with snow leopards in the mountains, like where people were like, "Hud, they were killing snow leopards." Now they're showing snow leopards to tourists because now they know that a snow leopard alive is much more money than a snow leopard dead, mm-hmm. and it's as simple as it brought down to that economics, but. There are also final nuances to it, but yeah, I think economics is a strong driver of coexistence for sure. Yeah. 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 So I think this is still in the same plane of this conversation and one that I would really, I'm excited to dive into this next one. So when we were chatting the other day, you had mentioned that there was talk of moving a population or like a group of these lines to a different area. And I would love to start to dive into that. So where were they supposed to go? Why are they not there yet? And then also let's get into this possible other species that might be coming in too, which is a big, big talk. And some people listening might not have heard about this yet because it's not that well known, but holy shit. So let's go. So what is this park? What is this area? What's going on with these lions? Why have they not moved? So so as you, as we have just talked through and pretty much we've established that they're the only population of Asian lions in the world. That's like the global population. It's a small population which has increased. But then as any small population or any restricted population is at a threat, is that they can be wiped off in any like epidemic or like in a, a flood or an earthquake so you don't keep all the eggs in the same basket that's like the last thing that you do so there had been a lot of scientific and and political conversations and directives thoughts meetings ideas research where it started way back in the early 1990s and since then like it has been very well established that we need a second population of asian lions so that it's like sort of an insurance population so that if something happens to this, then we still have a stock of wild lions. And so since then, the sites were selected and Kuno Palpur, which is like a protected area in Madhya Pradesh, in central India, that's like the neighboring state. And it had lions formerly. Now there are only leopards. There is a transient tiger once in a while. So that was selected, and it's a beautiful forest, very similar to the forest where lions are right at the time, at mm. this point, like the gear forest, very similar. So with all that work, with all that research, with all those technicalities, reports, everything, 
So finally, the, the central government started moving on this. So they started the voluntary relocation of people from inside Kuno to moving them outside so that they could bring the protected forest back into a sort of a level where they could host lions because, you know, bringing lions, they need inviolate space. They would need some sort of inviolate space when you're thinking about a wild population of lions. So um, that was done and that happened. That was the people were moved out and the park was started getting ready with prey restocking and like prey numbers increased really nicely. And then with all of that leading to one after the other. So I was at that time during my masters and was slowly getting into the lion picture. And I remember in 2013, when I was finishing my master's work, the Supreme Court of our country, which is like the highest court of law in the country, passed like, like a phenomenal judgment. It's like one of the most exquisite, the most extraordinary judgments that can come in a country where people want development and people want like more space. So what it said in the crux was that we need to be more ecocentric than anthropocentric when we are talking about species like lions and species that like wildlife which are property of the country not property of any particular group state or any place and lions to be moved with immediate effect and immediate effect meant six months and that was 2013 march this 2021 no lions have moved and it's primarily because there's a political deadlock and people love the lions there. And that's one of the major reasons why lions have increased from that tiny number to where it is. But people love lions. And it's just that if you start moving lions from one that place to another, they, per, they would lose their monopoly because mm. they are the only place where you find Asian lions in the entire globe. And that's like a, an absolutely different paradigm. So people are attached so much to lions, which have, which have actually helped lions to increase in that state of Gujarat. Now they are not ready to part with lions. And so it's like a series of political deadlocks, meetings after meetings. I served in a few of those meetings, served in those committees, wrote reports. So lions have not moved. Um, <laughs> lions have not moved. So, but the place is ready. Now, lions have not moved. Of course, the people who are associated with that place, the staff, the forest department, they're losing their morale because let's be honest, you need something charismatic to be connected, which is supremely unfortunate that we, as a professional value judgment, like charismatic species concept is sort of a dodgy concept for me because, you know, as soon as you put that, a good looking or a charismatic or a species, then you are sort of undermining other species completely. So why can't we quote unquote sell frogs and toads as much as we can sell lions and tigers or like, you know, leopards per se. So I guess, I guess that charisma holds and we cannot go beyond it right at this time. So people are losing their morale there because they're not big carnivore except leopard which is all there and protection regimes have gone down so the park it can snowball or just cascade back to being you know like 
it's the protect protection regime and and the biodiversity values can go down just because uh, that level of morale high protection are just not there because they're not seeing any movement or any any green signal for the lions to come in so but now what's happening is that in that same place now the indian government is very keen to bring the cheetah because that's the only species of carnivore that we have lost and they're like the indian government is in full steam to bring the cheetah and the cheetah since the asian cheetah we do not have the asiatic cheetah anymore like they are not there in india they are a handful of cheetahs in iran in iran and they're like about 30 to 40 cheetahs i guess still the population and and that's not enough to provide a stock of cheetahs for reintroduction or introduction per se so they're getting south african cheetahs that's the story they're getting south african cheetahs and yeah so that's that would be the place where cheetahs are going to come so we moved from lions to now bringing an absolutely different predator and hopefully i just hope that it's cheetahs and lions and not cheetahs or lions and i i believe in the like the scientists the group of scientists who's leading this project and like they're the best that you can ask for but it's like there's a lot of political nuances here yeah. and i hope i just hope that someday the lions also get a second home because it's necessary cheetahs absolutely like you know i don't like cheetahs we've lost cheetahs i've never seen cheetahs in india we are at a stage where we can bring an extinct cat back we are not an economically impoverished country anymore africa does it we can do it but all i'm trying to say is that get the cheetah and get the lions and make that enough space where they can have their niche separated out so that there is no competition because we all know when lions and cheetahs compete what happens so so we have right. to we we have to we have to have those but i definitely strongly believe in the group of scientists who are leading this the comeback of the cheetah project and hopefully if you ask me for a value judgment well i would love to see the cheetah in there because who doesn't want to see the cheetah but all the political nuances and conservation chronicles well we'll see how it plays out but it is exciting it is a lot of work it is equally scary but i also hope that the political deadlock on the lions end and we can have a second home for lions as well so it's like lions and cheetahs so that's that should be the motto and i hope that the indian government and and the the bureaucratic machinery can think about moving forward with that goal and not just one over the other. Oh my god, if that happens, I'm going to lose my mind. Like <laughs> I'm going to be on a plane so fast. <laughs> like, you're going to be greeting me. Yes, absolutely. Somewhere somewhere yeah. in India be like, "Oh my god, Stocha, let's go. Let yeah. us let's go. Let's go see all of the cats." I mean, yeah. literally. Like, "Oh my god." to go yeah. see cheetah asiatic lions then go somewhere in central india somewhere for tigers and then of course leopards are throughout that entire range as well and to go spend some time in the himalayas to see snow leopards you got it i might die <laughs> <laughs> me too i might die too and so yeah i guess 
I guess it would be a very strong economic and tourism uh, uh, boost as well. It would be well. huge. Yeah. Huge. It would I be mean, huge. Tigers already bring so much money in for India. I can only imagine. Because, oh, I mean, snow leopard tourism has definitely increased. It's way more of a time commitment, of course. Yeah. Because nature of those cats. Yeah. But, man, yeah. that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. But yeah, so that's the political scenario with the lion reintroduction. And it's so, sometimes it's frustrating for a conservationist to look at mm-hmm. that, you know, it's and I'm sure I'm just I'm just very, I'm just I just joined to this bandwagon very, very recently, like 10 years ago. But there are people who have been working on this for so long, but still the lions have not moved. So I think I hope the cheetah paves the way of more of these like you know bold actions like yes we need to do this we have to move the lions to somewhere else because that's what the best thing to do right uh, absolutely the correct thing to do ecologically and um, you know from the point of view of the species per se so yeah wow god Oh, that'd be amazing. We'll just have to see what happens. We'll have to wait yeah. it out. You have to keep me updated. Just yeah. like text me. Like, yeah. Here's the latest up. They'd be like, okay. Yeah. Let's give it to that. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Am I buying a ticket yet or not? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Or just can't be posted. Yeah. Am I just Absolutely. coming to go see you in Minnesota or are we getting a plane? <laughs> yeah. We just take a plane from Minnesota and just go. Like, Ooh, let's do this. Yeah. I have a great international airport here. Where am I meeting you? <laughs> like, <laughs> Boom, let's do this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We should do that. At least go see the lions. Oh my God. Yeah, please. Please. Yeah. That would be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Because then also too, because that's close enough to go and like attach it with like a snow leopard trip because yeah. I have not seen them yet. And that needs to happen. Oh, that needs to happen. Snow leopards. Oh, they're just a different. Oh, they're just so so beautiful. But, have you yeah. seen one? Like, have you gone? I have only seen. I've only seen them in captivity. No, not yet. Mm. So my PhD mentor, my PhD professor, he works. He started working with snow leopards, and he's been he has radio collared a few, and he's been promising me that next time you come, we go to the mountains and we track snow leopards. And since then, it's been COVID, COVID, and restrictions, and mm. I, just, I just, I just want to be there. I've not <laughs> seen the lions for so long because it's been so long yes. that I've seen the lions, and I'm like, ah, oh, I don't even know how would I react when I see the lions. It might be for like just the feeling of the first rush that I had when I saw them for the first time, but yeah, I see. But mm. it's definitely something. But I, I believe that as, as you, like, definitely mentioned that you know working with these severely charismatic carnivores or species are also very politically charged and as researchers we are quote unquote at the mercy of a lot of funding a lot of logistics and it's not just like you know as i said the political scenario of moving lines it's not just science that the lines are moving or not moving it's like socio-political connect and Let's be honest, conservation is a political, is a socio-political win. And why not? Why not? And it should be that way. But as a researcher, when I think about it, like, you know, it's easier to get funding when you're working with charismatic species like lions and tigers, but it also comes with its cons. 
it also comes with the different other side because then you're also treading your path or thinking what might your signs lead to whether you're gonna say if you're gonna say this whether you lose your right to work more or if you say this would that be the doom for the species per se like if wolves have an effect on deer like recent like i'm working with my collaborators are looking at like wolves and deer interactions like wolves having an effect on deer that reduces deer hunting by people they will not take that well and they will gonna go out for the for the wolves so every time you're working with these kinds of politically charged species it can be quite tough and challenging just because you don't know what you should place out there as a as a conservationist as a researcher science is something that you cannot compromise with and that's what i have tried to and i've been taught to again you'd say the right things out there then you perhaps will not be working with that species for a while again because it's politically charged and people might not want to listen to those views so mm. yeah those perils are always there i'm sure if somebody who works with reptiles and amphibians are like luck, like these are these are not challenges enough I'm sure their challenges are different it's difficult to find money it's difficult to find money for us too but perhaps it's relatively easier to find pots of money because you know charismatic species do attract funding but the other other side is also kind of a bit of a challenging where primary like i i know firsthand i know people who have lost their permits just because they they spoke out from signs the unpleasant truths or basically truths that were unpleasant to people communities or administrators or like yeah the system and then you just end up not having the right to work later or just things get constrained so i think yeah you just keep it just it's just sort of a balance that you paddle through and it's challenging it's exciting and it's fun and sometimes superbly frustrating and yeah <laughs> i can all imagine yeah to wake up and <laughs> tell myself that yeah that's the core crux of sometimes i teach my students is like doing conservation is a frustrating affair you're going to lose much more times than you're going to win but when you win it's going to stick with you for the rest of your life so i want a student of mine asked me why do it if it's so frustrating i said if you don't then the result will always be zero but if you do it then perhaps perhaps it might be a one so just keep banging on those doors until they break most of them will not but then that does not stop us like if if people would have thought differently then there would not be like the californian condors left or right so i think conservation doing conservation is supremely frustrating so you cannot let go of optimism at all so mm. yeah. That is a great mindset, but especially since you have such firsthand experience, because it sounds like that's probably one of the biggest 
because you know you you've listened to the podcast as well and I always love to ask what are some of the biggest struggles that you've had to overcome and it sounds like that is a really big one that you have dealt with and might mm-hmm. even still be dealing with and might deal mm-hmm. with in the future as long as you continue to work with these yep. animals absolutely uh you cannot go around go about or circumvent the fact that they are politically charged species people connect with them differently it can be, go both ways like you know lions killing livestock lions killing humans it can go from like really good to it can go south really fast or being dubbed as researchers who are trying to move lions from the state to another state you become the villain overnight so you know where do you stand where does where do you think your research stands or you call out on like you know these are things that might be causing problems to an absolutely good system or these are well intended interventions but uh, they might they might be much more counterproductive than they are being productive you call them out you call those thoughts out as a scientist and then you just lose out on being or doing future research and and i think you would get similar stories from most people who work in similar on similar species or similar landscapes which are like superbly politically charged or politically you know sociopolitically sort of connected and though that those perils come with the parks so right i can only imagine what every single wolf researcher right now in the northern united states feels like i'm sure that they vibe real hard with that i can can't even imagine unless the few that are they're like and yay we're in colorado and everything's going okay here <laughs> finally and everyone's like oh everybody's shooting our wolves hmm. you know i can only fathom i can yeah. only fathom <laughs> yeah it's i guess as i said you have to make do with a lot of those losses and a lot a lot of those weird uh, decisions that you don't stand by and you have to like clench your jaw so strong that it hurts in the morning but then again you go out and listen to a wolf like a pack of wolves howling in the distance or a, or a lion roaring resoundingly to the red dawn or or you just look at like like dewdrops on a spider web caught in the morning sun rays and then you say that it's worth fighting and that's all that matters i guess so yeah, yeah. cannot agree more. Yeah. Oh, I have taken up so much of your time and it's been absolutely phenomenal. But I did want to ask this one last thing. Since you have a platform right now and you can share whatever message you want, is there a particular thing that you would like to say to anybody listening, a message or a piece of advice or takeaway that if anybody could take away just one thing, what would you want to make sure they did? And I I think I'll reiterate what I just keep telling my conservation course is that if you are really passionate about doing conservation you're going to lose more than you're going to win but that's why it's so crucial to embrace those wins and just just get on with it and like push forward because if you lose hope the community the whole community of species as well as humans who are looking up to you where you are the voice for them 
loses all their hopes. So it's super crucial that you hold on to your beliefs and do not, please do not do conservation research, conservation science, or conservation in containment. Make connections, connect with people, because that world has changed where one person, of course, one person can make a difference. And I don't think that we do live in that world anymore. You have to make those connections. You have to make fruitful connections to move forward. And I think just put yourself out there, make that group where you can have those uncomfortable discussions so that you can carry forward what's crucial for the years to come. Otherwise, I don't see a chance for our planet. I don't see a a chance for conservation or wildlife. If you're not making those meaningful connections, there are no possibilities. So, and the pandemic has taught us that severely and very difficult, in a very difficult way. So just just hold on to your passion and do whatever you can, like, you know, be a vet tech or, or do tiny, small little things. Go talk to school kids. Or, or do anything. You don't have to do like a walking, talking, like a conservation research. You don't have to just do your thing. Talk to your family that like, reduce palm oil consumption, save the orangutans back in Borneo. And yeah, and make those connections. Just talk to people and make those fruitful connections where you can bank upon. And I hope I'll just end with optimism that there is a lot left and there's a lot we can do. And I think we definitely can if we are holding on to those meaningful connections. Yep. Ah, so good. I cannot agree more with all of that. You know, I'm all about connecting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know. And I think that's why, that's why what you do is so inspirational because you know, you're connecting people and you're making that group where they can share thoughts and ideas to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you agree. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, like you've, they really want to learn more maybe about the lions or maybe about what you're teaching, or they just want to chat for whatever, whatever, how can someone get in touch with you? They can email me for sure. I am faculty McAllister College. You can find me there at the bio ES department. So my email address is S Chakrab, which is like S C H A K. R-A-B at McAllister, which is spelled as M-A-C-A-L-E-S-T-E-R dot E-D-U. And you can reach to, reach out to me on that email address and I would be happy to. I'm pretty active on Twitter with my name. And so just hit me up on Twitter if you're looking for updates of what's happening in my life and what's happening in my courses and what I'm working on currently. And yeah, so that would be, I I would be really ecstatic to answer any questions or anything that I might be helpful about. So, yeah. Well, awesome. This has been amazing. I cannot wait to share this with everybody. Thank you, Brooke. And I'm really, really grateful that you invited me on this show. And it's been fantastic chatting with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.